Good morning. Tell you what, it's nice to be home. Our family's been away on vacation for the last week, and finally about last night for the first time in a week got to sleep in my own bed. It's a nice feeling. It's much softer sometimes, um, that pillow is, it feels like. Um, one thing I want to mention, everybody, really before we get started this morning, uh, the congregation that we visited um, while we were in, in Florida, um, it's the Church of Christ at Flagler County. Um, you can look up their website. But I wanted to mention to you all that, I mean, it's a fairly small congregation uh, in a beach area. You would imagine most of their attendance thrives on visitors and things like that, similar to the congregation up in uh, Pigeon Forge and around Gatlinburg does the same thing. Most of their congregation, I say most, I'd probably say half their congregation, it sounds like, is leaving this Tuesday for a mission trip in Honduras that they're doing themselves. And so we had actually asked to get a list. They had put together a list of every individual their congregation that was going to be going and us asking all the other members of their congregation to be praying specifically for those, uh, those individuals over the coming week. They were going to email us a list as well. We were going to hand out here, and uh, Jenna's parents were going to give out at the congregation up in Allen's. Um, we never did get the list from them, but if you don't mind, over this next week, keep them in your prayers. Um, obviously, traveling outside the country and doing a lot of physical labor and obviously a lot of spiritual labor while they're there, we'll make sure for their safety and that they can have a lot accomplished while they're in Honduras. And again, that's the Church of Christ at Flagler County. All right, so our lesson this morning, um, William has actually already heard part of this before. The, the idea for this lesson came from one of the classes that we went to when we went to Rush a couple years ago at Freed Hardman University. Um, I want everybody to kind of picture in their mind, and I know everybody ha has somebody like this that they've met that is just ginormous, somebody that just seems huge to you. And I, and I mean physical size. It's just a big person. Um, I have one person that I remember that I, I personally got to meet. It was several years ago. Um, I, was, I was a kid, and some of you may remember a basketball player at Tennessee Tech, Lorenzo Coleman. Does anybody remember him playing basketball at Tech? This was back when I was, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years old or something. He was a dominant player at Tech. Um, went on to play um, some professional basketball. He has a, a page about him on Wikipedia. Um, unfortunately, he passed away a couple years ago at a, a fairly young age, but he was seven foot one inches tall and weighed 264 pounds. And at seven one, I, to me, 264 pounds is not really big around the waist. I mean, he was a big, strong guy. Um, and I always remember him because he shattered the backboard during one game at Tech, and that just blew my mind. I got a little piece of glass from it one time. Um, but I, I looked up online some of the biggest basketball players that have ever played in the NBA. And listen to some of these. There, there's been 25 players, and I think this was as of last year. There were 25 players listed at seven foot three inches or taller that have played in the NBA. The biggest one being, and I hope I say this name correctly, George Merson from Romania was seven foot seven. Think about that. A, a normal ceiling in a house is about eight foot tall. Seven, you're five inches from hitting your head on the ceiling. So, I mean, if I stick my hand up as high as I can possibly stick it up, I might hit the top of his head. That's a big guy. Some of you may remember Andre the Giant. He was a professional wrestler. He was in some movies. Um, he stood at seven foot four and weighed about 500 pounds. A big, monstering, towers kind of guy. The Guinness World Record, and again, this is a world record from... I guess you would say modern medical history and, and something that can be, it's irrefutable. So they've actually had somebody gone out and measure the person. And so this may not be the tallest person in history. I'm, I'm going to argue in a minute, probably was not. Um, 
But there is a gentleman by the name of Robert Wadlow. Uh, he was born in 1918, passed away in 1940. And so he, he was merely, well, my math works correctly, but 22 years old. Had obviously a lot of medical problems, had braces on his legs and stuff. But he was 8 foot 11.1 inches tall, 22 years old. And if anybody's ever been to one of those um, Ripley's museums, he's in the Ripley Museum. They have like a wax statue of him. That is a big, big guy. In the Bible, we read a lot about giants, especially in the Old Testament. All right, so we're going to look at some of these today. Everybody get your Bibles out. We're going to be looking at several passages, and I want us to look at them together. We're going to read several things together. Who is probably the most well-known giant in all the Bible? You don't have to say it out loud. It's Goliath. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. And so turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want us to go through this for a reason, and I'm going to kind of use the, the, the dimensions, the size, and everything given about Goliath as kind of a baseline to establish how big these giants in the Bible really were. Goliath was not the only one, and we'll, we'll find out some more about that in a minute. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, look at verse 4. It says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. So six cubits in a span, how tall is that really? Now, a span is half a cubit, so he's six and a half cubits tall. Now, traditionally, we have always understood a cubit to be a foot and a half, is 18 inches. And so if we go using that measurement, Goliath was nine foot nine inches tall. Nine foot nine is how big this guy was. However, according to Matthew Henry's commentary that he wrote, there is some debate around whether a cubit really was 18 inches. There's some historians believe that it could have gone up to, to even 21 inches in length. So let's say for a minute then you look at the high end of the spectrum. Let's say a cubit really was 21 inches. At six and a half cubits, Goliath was 11 feet, four and a half inches tall. 11, that's like two of me. You stand another one of me on top of me, it's about the same size as Goliath. Imagine how big that is. Somebody my size walking up and just looking at him. I mean, you can imagine what David thought when he went out. So you have somebody that's anywhere from 9'9 to possibly almost 11 and a half feet tall was how big Goliath was. But it's not just somebody that he had height and was just skin and bones. Let's, let's go through and keep reading uh, chapter 17, verse 5. Listen to all the stuff that he carried with him. He had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. Now, we're talking about a coat of mail. You got some metal hanging on you that, imagine like fish scales, more or less, that you have these little pieces and chunks of metal all overlapping each other. It's so no arrow or spear or anything can get through. So he's now wearing this coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So what is that? Now, there have been some people that have argued 5,000 shekels because a shekel was a a measure of money, too. It was a unit of money like we have pennies and dimes and stuff. But it's also a weight, 5,000 shekels. A shekel is approximately 11 grams. So if his coat of mail, and remember, this is just the coat that he's wearing on his torso. If it was 5,000 and it had 11 grams, that means this coat of mail weighed 55,000 grams, which that equates to a little over 121 pounds. So just on his torso alone, he is wearing armor that weighed 121 pounds. Now, that does not count his helmet that he had on. And if we keep on reading, 
Then in verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs. It doesn't count all the rest of the armor that he had on. Listen to this in verse 6. It had a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Verse 7, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So 600 shekels. Again, if you use that 11 grams for the weight, we're looking at the head of his spear, just the end of it weighed about 14 and a half pounds. Now, that may not sound like a lot. The average human head, take my head off, stick it on a scale, is roughly 11 pounds. So you're talking the head of his spear that he throws was heavier than an average size human head. Has anybody ever, I, mean, I know some people in here work out, you take a 10 pound weight and you try to hold it out to the side, and just hold your arm straight out for a, a minute. You might be able to do it for a minute. Your arms are going to wear out pretty quick, unless you're doing it all the time. It's heavier than that. If I can take a 10-pound dumbbell, I'm trying to imagine how far I can throw it. There's no way I'm throwing it to the door in the back. I might get it halfway down the aisle. I don't know. He uses this as the head of his spear, not counting the shaft and everything of his spear, that he launches at people during a war. Imagine how big this guy is. I mean, this guy's a monster. You... you you can understand why he was the one chosen to go out in front of the Philistines to fight this one-on-one -on -one battle for them to try to, to, try to destroy the, the children of Israel. And little old David, David goes out there and tries to fight him. Now, Goliath was not your normal size human back then. And we'll say that. I mean, the people that we read about in Scripture in the Old Testament, they were not all Goliath size. But he was also not an abnormality. It's not like this... Robert Wadlow that we had that was that holds the Guinness World Record of the tallest person ever, about eight foot, eleven and a half inches tall. That is an abnormality in today's times. You don't have people that big anymore. Goliath was not a one of a kind. There were more giants like him that lived during that era. And so if we ever think back about, let's say, a giant slayer, if we talk about the giant slayer of the of the Bible, who are we probably gonna think of? Well, David. He's the one who slew Goliath. But were there others? And that's what I want us to look at this morning is the other giant slayer. It's the title of the lesson. Turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Here's just a couple other of these giants that is talked about in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 3. In verse 11, it says, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not of Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits in its length and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. So again, let's say traditionally we use the 18 inches for a cubit. He had a bed that was six feet wide. Well, that's not unusual. I mean, a king-size bed today is roughly about that same dimension, six foot wide. Thirteen feet long. I imagine it had to be 13 feet long so it, like his knees weren't hanging off the end of it. Og was one of these giants. Flip over a couple chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak. All right, we're going to look at this race of people in just a moment. The descendants of Anak. We're, they're mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but who are they really? 
And what role did they play in the Old Testament? You know, other than Goliath, and, and you've probably heard of King Og and, and maybe the descendants of Anak before, but, but the next probably most famous giant, I guess I'd put it that way, besides Goliath in the Old Testament, is from the scripture reading that we had just a minute ago. Turn over to Numbers chapter 13. And I say one of the, some of the more famous ones because of their mention in probably more children's stories and stuff that we have in our Bible classes growing up. Um, you hear them talked about in sermons, where King Og is probably not talked in a whole lot of sermons, not talked about much. But Numbers chapter 13, look at verse 17. And what we're looking at here is when the spies are getting ready to be sent out into Canaan. And so Moses gets a representative from each of the, the tribes. You have the 12 spies. They're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. They're going to go look it over, see what the land is like, what the terrain is like, what the, the vegetation is like, the inhabitants are like, so they can come back and report to the children of Israel. So look at Numbers chapter 13, again, starting verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, many or few, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or like strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the, of the first ripe grapes. All right, so this is what these spies are intending to do. They're going out and they're just going to scout the place. They're not going out to engage in any kind of battle. They're probably going as incognito as possible, very stealth-like, sneaking around, because they don't want the inhabitants of, that, of the land of Canaan to know, hey, there's all this group of people over here getting ready to come in and try to overthrow you. And here's, here's the, the little spies going out trying to check everything out. So they were, they were hiding what they were doing and just supposed to watch and observe everything. Now, there's a lot of military reasons why you would want to do this, obviously. You, you need to know what you're up against, and they need to have somewhat of a plan when they go in. And if you read over in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it actually indicates that the idea to do this was not God sent them to do that. It indicates that this was the idea of the children of Israel. They wanted to go and spy out the land which could be a whole other lesson in and of itself. We're not going to get into that today. But one thing I, I don't want you to do is to underestimate the task that these 12 spies had. I mean, if imagine that there's 12 people from, let's just even say Pippin, that the President of the United States chooses 12 people from here that we're about to go invade another country, and he says, I want you 12 to go in there first and see what it's like. Um, what? I don't want to do something like that because they had no idea what they were getting into. They didn't know. I mean, it said to go find out whether or not these towns are like, are like camps or like strongholds. They have no idea what they're going to encounter. So, again, don't underestimate what these 12 spies were up against and the courage that they had to have to go in and do this. And so these were not just your scared little individuals that, that were skittish at every little thing that happened. These were probably 12 of the most courageous warriors that the children of Israel had. All right, so they're, they're gone 40 days. They come back after the 40 days, and we all heard they bring back the, the grapes that are hanging on the, the pole because they're so big they couldn't carry it by themselves, and they come and bring back their report. So jump down to Numbers chapter 13, verse 26. All right, it says, Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. These bunch of grapes that they carried back on a pole. Then they told them and said, 
We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. You talk about excitement that probably started to well up inside the leaders of the children of Israel that are getting this firsthand report. They're hearing what this place is like. And, man, this place is full. Look at these grapes they brought back. Milk and honey flowing. This is fantastic. We're getting ready to get the land that we've always wanted. And then the bad news comes. Verse 28. It says, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. You can just imagine the blood rushing out of their faces. Their hearts feeling like it sinks into their stomach. It's like, oh no. Really, that's who's living in there? Is the descendants of Anak? Now that may not mean much to us, but they knew exactly what that meant. And basically the report is, we can't do this. I don't care what the land was like. I don't care if it is flowing with milk and honey. We saw the descendants of Anak in there. We can't take this land. We can't go. Now, Caleb, Joshua and Caleb were two of the ones that went with them, obviously. We know the story. They're the only two that came back with a positive report. Ten of them said they can't do it. Those two said they can. Caleb starts to speak up at this point because he can probably tell the shift in the conversation going to a very negative, very negative place. And he speaks up right there and says, all right, yeah, that's where it's there. Let's go. We can do this. Come on, let's go get it. And tries to shift it back to more of a positive a positive spin on it, but look down at verse 31. It says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. In verse 32 and 33, this is our scripture reading this morning, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. This basically did it in. The, the children of Israel heard this, and their, their confidence was gone, and basically said, we can't do this. We cannot go and take the land of Canaan. We don't care what God promised to us. We can't do this. We can't fight people like that. Well, now we all know how the story ends up at this point. Because of their refusal to go into Canaan and because they did not trust God to go in there, it resulted in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That entire generation was going to have to die out first. And the next generation coming up, God said, would be the ones that would inherit Canaan. Caleb and Joshua being the only exceptions. They got to go into Canaan as well. They did not have to die uh, before that was to happen. Um, imagine, too, and, and again, this could, I guess could almost be a sermon in and of itself. Put yourself in Joshua and Caleb's place as you take the land of Canaan at this point. They're the only two left from that entire generation. And you're not talking a group of a couple hundred people. We've studied in our, our adult Bible classes in here before how big the children of Israel really were at this time. You're talking millions of people possibly. They were the only two from that generation still alive. All the rest of them had died off in the wilderness. So you're talking about men who are significantly older than everyone around them. And, and we'll get into their ages here in a minute. So who exactly then are these descendants of Anak? It's very important that we understand this. Because this, this is the second time we've heard their name. Obviously, this is the report that was brought back from the land of Canaan. And they were mentioned uh, a little bit earlier in one of the verses we looked at. They were a race of giants that lived in Canaan. That's who they were. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Like I said, we're going to flip around through a few verses today, so... I hear a few pages turning, but make sure, you're, make sure you're turning there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 2, let's look at verse 10. 
says the Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them the Emim. So again, we hear the, the descendants of Anak. That's the, the Anakim. They are the ones who the rest of the world at that time, if you had somebody that was a really big person or a really big race of people, that's who they were compared to. In essence, they were the poster child for the giants that lived in the land at that time. That's who the children of Israel are having to face when they go into Canaan. All right, so, I mean, this is not, like I said, a race of people that you want to mess with. We just heard about Goliath, and that's the reason I went through some of how big Goliath was and the weight that he had to carry, so how big and strong he probably was. Now imagine not just Goliath, but you have Goliath's parents. You have his siblings. You have his fifth cousins. You have his friends. You have everybody living in an area that's just like Goliath. You have an entire race of Goliaths, possibly up to, what did say, 11 foot, four and a half inches tall, possibly. This is a huge race of people. You can imagine now why the spies, when they came back from Canaan, were scared to go in. It's like, we can't do this. We can't fight these people. There, there's no way. We're like grasshoppers in our own sight, and I guarantee we look like grasshoppers to them. There's no way we're doing this. And I'm sure the descendants of Anak, they probably weren't too worried about somebody coming and trying to attack them. I'm sure it had happened many times in the past, and obviously they were the poster childs of these giants. Nobody wanted to mess with them. Everybody wanted to stay away from them. These were a feared group of people. So again, when we, we talked about when you think of a giant slayer in the Bible, we think of David because he's the one that took out Goliath. Well, these descendants of Anak did not, you don't really hear their name brought up much past them going in and taking over Canaan. Why is that? because they ceased to exist at that point. They were taken out. When the children of Israel went in to take over Canaan, they were destroyed, just like all the other inhabitants that God commanded, that they would be basically wiped out of their country. Who did that? Somebody didn't just take on Goliath. They took on an entire race of Goliaths. This is what I want us to look at. All right, so turn over to Joshua chapter 13 and 14, and this is where we're going to spend a majority of the rest of our time. And in Joshua, this is where, obviously, when Moses died, we all know the story that Joshua was put in charge of the children of Israel. He was kind of the leader of their army that was going to go in to overthrow the land of Canaan, that they were going to be able to take the inhabitants of it. Um, in Joshua chapter 13, verse 1 and verse 6, let's look at that real quick. It says, Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And remember, he was advanced in years because him and Caleb were the only two of that generation alive when they went into Canaan. He was old when they first started going in, so it's not like they've been in Canaan for 50 years now. He was already old when they started. It says, Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. That's important right there. They have not fully overtaken everything in Canaan at this point. There's still inhabitants there that needed to get pushed out. Jump down to verse 6. All the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook of Misrephoth and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from
from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I've commanded you. All right, so this is what's getting ready to happen. Is Joshua now is supposed to start dividing up the land of Canaan to all the different tribes of Israel. They get their inheritance as God had laid out the promises to Abraham that he had made. But we just read in verse 1 that not all the land had been cleared yet. They still had people that needed to get pushed out. So as this land starts getting divided up, it's going to be up to these tribes of Israel to make sure that the people in those lands are pushed out, that they're gone, that they're destroyed. This is where I want us to get to. All right, flip over to chapter 14. He's dividing everything up. You can read some more through 13, and it starts reading in 14 and 15 and on, is the land that each of these different tribes is getting. Caleb comes to Joshua. So let's start reading in verse 6 together. So Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, the Kenizzite, apologize, I'm probably messing those up. The Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. So he was 40 years old when he was a spy when they first went out. Caleb was, and I'm sure Joshua was about the same age. So I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So he's referring to the good report that him and, and Joshua brought back. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And so Caleb was promised a certain section of land because of his obedience and his faithfulness to God, bringing back a good report and believing that they could go in and take it. In verse 10, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. So he was 40 years old when they went to spy out the land. And God has now kept him alive for another 45 years. Remember, so this is past the wilderness wandering. They've started going into Canaan. So how old is Caleb at this point? He's 85 years old. So Caleb is a fairly old man by this point. Verse 10, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. All right, so Caleb, like I said, has approached Joshua, and Caleb is basically saying, you're breaking up the inheritance? Remember, God promised that, that I could have the area that basically my foot trod on, the area that we spied out. God promised I could have that. So he's coming to Joshua saying, this is what I want. Listen to what he says in verse 12. It says, Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron, and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Did you catch that? Did you hear what area Caleb wanted as an inheritance? He wanted the land where these giants were at. He got his choice of where he wanted that they went in and spied out. This man is 85 years old. And as his inheritance, 
He wants the land where the descendants of Anak are at. He wants the giants. Put yourself in his shoes. You remember these people that all the children of Israel were scared about? You remember we were getting ready to go in and take over the land of Canaan, this great land filled with milk and honey and all these grapes and all these giant cities and fortresses that we could have lived in. We didn't have to rebuild them. They're already there built. We could just go in and push everybody out, have all their stuff. And then everybody found out about the descendants of Anak, and they stopped. That's who Caleb wants. He said, give them to me. I'm not scared of them. I've got God on my side. And you even hear what he said in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. He leaves in there the possibility that he may not be able to drive them out. But he understands that God's going to be with him to do this. He wanted the thing that nobody else wanted. He was not scared of taking on a giant. And not just a giant, an entire race of giants. Now obviously he's not going to be there by himself. He has an entire family and everybody with him that would help him. But he wasn't scared of a task. He wasn't afraid of a large task in front of him that he had to try to take on. You talk about courage as somebody. What would we have done had we been in his shoes? Would we have chosen an area that was very easy? He's one of the two oldest people in the children of Israel probably much wiser than most of the rest of them. He's, it says that he's still as strong then when he's 85 as he was when he was 40 spying out the land. But you have this younger generation come up that you probably have some mighty warriors in the children of Israel. I can imagine a lot of people, Joshua and Caleb, sitting and talking to each other, as they probably did a lot. They're the only two people in that generation discussing different matters and him saying, look, this is the people we need to give Hebron to. They're the strongest warriors we have in the children of Israel. They're the mightiest men that we have. If we're going to push these giants out, we need to assign it to them. That can be their inheritance. But that's not what Caleb did. That's what most of us would probably do today, is try to find what's the most logical. We would try to look at it from a human standpoint, which is exactly what the children of Israel did for the reason why they didn't go into Canaan to start with. They were looking at it with logic instead of trying to look at it as God's with us. So again, this whole history story we've kind of gone through this morning, there, there's been a reason for it. Caleb, at his place in his life, was willing to take on a massive, massive task. Something that seemed impossible to be accomplished at that time. That nobody else wanted to do, that everybody else was scared to do. He stepped up to the plate and said, you give it to me. I've got God on my side, I'm not worried about it. You give it to me, I'll go take on these children of Anak. What are some problems that we today as a church face that just seem so big and insurmountable that it, it, it can't be done? We just kind of, it's an understood thing. You know what? I'm not even going to mess with it. There's nothing that can be done over there. There's no point in me going and wasting my time over here trying to do something like that when I know I'm going to fail at it. Why don't I go over here and do something that's a little bit easier than I know I can accomplish? What are some of those things that we as a church today, maybe as a church collectively, or us as individuals face like that? One we went through a year or so ago, the abortion things that were being passed here in, in this country, in this state, the Yes on One campaign that I know a lot of us got involved in. You take on a task that big that the world seems to be okay with, and you just have a few Christians out here trying to get something done, 
I think that right there should be a, a I'd say a sign. I'm not meaning a sign from a spiritual sign from God, but that should be an indication from us, a sign of what we can do when we band together as a Christian family. When we decide we're going to take on something that seems impossible to do. To convince society that something that's sin is not going to be tolerated. Look what can be accomplished. Evolution that's being taught to our children in the school systems. And so many people trying to push creation and God out of our schools and out of every other thing that goes on in our society. Does it seem like that has gotten to a point that it's too big for us to do anything about now? We just kind of like, you know what? We'll accept defeat on that, and we'll just go over here and make sure that we teach our children what they need to know. There's nothing we can do about this over here now. The agenda of homosexuality that's being promoted within our country, the same thing. A cultural shift away from God that we see in our country, but even within the church. How many congregations that, that claim to be a faithful part of the Lord's church are beginning to have women stand here in this pulpit? Women take on leadership roles as elders and other things that goes completely against what Scripture teaches. But it's growing, and it's growing. And, and we may not have a lot of that in our general area here in the Upper Cumberland. I mean, there's a few congregations that may be trying to push the envelope on a few things, but you start to get out into Texas, and you get out in California, and you get out in other places like this, this is a big problem they're facing out there. Instrumental music working its way into the church. Do we allow these things to continue to the point that it becomes so big that we just feel like there's this giant standing out here, this entire race of giants in front of us that we can't do anything about? I'm not going to go over there and try to overtake that land. I don't care if God did promise me that that's the land I'm going to inherit someday. I can't do it. Look at the problem that's there. Or do we stand like Caleb and said, I don't care. God's on my side. Give me that giant. I'll be happy to go and take it on. I may not win. It doesn't matter. At least I'm going to try to do it. There, there's a couple things that Caleb understood about these giants that I think we need to understand about problems we face today. He he saw these giants for what they were. These were not people who were sitting, using roofs of houses as benches to sit on and using a two-by-four as a toothpick. That's what you see in cartoons and movies and all this stuff. Yeah, these people were huge. I mean, this one had a bed that was 13 foot long. Goliath's standing anywhere from 9 to 11 feet tall. But he's not stepping over houses as he walks down the road. Yeah, he's big, but he ain't that big. He's a lot bigger than I am, but so what? A lot of people are. That doesn't matter. He didn't allow the problem and the fear of the problem to escalate it into something bigger than what it really was. And if you really look at, take, for instance, the homosexual agenda that's being pushed in our country today, it's like, oh, everybody outside the church all wants this to happen. Well, no. If you really look at the statistics of it, there's not that many. You have this squeaky wheel that's getting all the attention because they're this small minority is willing to get out there and push and push and push and they've convinced society that that's what everybody wants the problem we've allowed it to escalate into something that, bigger than what it really is and we think we can't do anything about it now and it, I, I think that's perfectly shown in numbers chapter 13 when they came back and said look these giants we are like grasshoppers to them and they probably think we're grasshoppers too if a grasshopper standing next to me, I'll just step over and step on it and squish it if I, if I wanted to. But they allowed these giants to become these massive things in their mind. Yeah, they were big, but they weren't that big. 
And Caleb recognized that and he understood that. He also understood that they were still humans. They were still people that could be defeated. They were not somebody that was indestructible. You know, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, we're not going to go to it and read it just for time's sake, but God prophesied, he said, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's the church. This church isn't going anywhere. Now, if we want to cower back to stuff and allow the church to overtake what we're doing, okay, maybe a congregation may fall to the wayside. But God's church will never be overtaken. It doesn't matter all these other problems that are going on out there. The war has already been fought. Jesus won that war at Calvary. There's no more fighting the war. So if we're wanting to choose what side we want to be on, I want to choose the winning side. They've already won. Why would somebody want to go over here to the other side? We already know what's going to happen to that side. It's already been defeated. As uh, Brother Blackwell mentioned in, his, in the video we watched in the adult class, is the final enemy that will be defeated is death. Death has already been beaten. Death will be destroyed completely come judgment day. Caleb understood God had promised them this land of Canaan. He knew it was already going to happen. They just needed somebody to step up, step to the plate, and take care of what needed to be done, and he was willing to do it. This church has already won. Jesus has already fought that battle for us. He has already defeated Satan. They now need us as his Christians to step up and do the things that need to be done and not look at a problem and magnify it in our mind and think it's too big to accomplish. Trying to evangelize the entire world or maybe even just the community here may seem like a big task. But if we don't ever go out and try to talk to somebody about Christ, are we no better than the children of Israel who were cowering back from the giants, the descendants of Anak, because they were scared to do something? They just thought, well, it's too big. There's nothing I can do. I'm just one person. And it's a good thing Caleb didn't think that when they went in and take the children of Israel. So think about that. Your, your biggest fears that you have in your Christian life, are they really as big as what you think they are? Or is it something small that you're allowing to magnify in your head? I mean, what is, what's holding you back? Do you think you're not good enough? Do you think that you don't know enough? Becoming a child of God, becoming one of his children, do you think that you have too many sins in your life that you can't be baptized at this point and put on Christ and become his child? You, you, there's too much sin. None of us are perfect. Don't blow that up into a bigger problem. Yes, the sin will need to be corrected, but don't let that stop you from becoming a child of his today. Do you think that you don't know enough? Okay, the Bible talks about being a babe in Christ. Babies don't know things. They have to learn things. You don't have to know every little bitty detail that's inside the Scripture before you can become a child of God's. Don't let that hold you back from being baptized today. Do you feel like you're too big of a sinner? Tell Paul. Paul went around persecuting the church and killing Christians. If you think you're too big of a sinner in your life, Go see what Paul thought about it. He obviously thought it was okay. He understood what he had done was wrong, and he changed. He didn't allow something like that, a problem he had to hold him back from doing what he should have done. You know, like Caleb, we, we see these obstacles sometimes as too big. Don't let that stand between you and Christ. Don't let that stand between you and eternity. Put on Christ today in baptism if you haven't done that. Become a child of his. Or maybe you have 
and you just see these problems and you don't think you can do it anymore. You can. Age is not an excuse. Ability is not an excuse. You see what Caleb done, 85 years old, took on one of the biggest problems the entire children of Israel were scared to take on themselves, people much younger than him. Make your life right if that's what you need to do today. We invite you to come as we stand and we sing.